my friend Mitch recounted a conversation he had the other day at work, and uh, a, a fellow worker uh, called him in the office and goes, hey Mitch, can I, I'd like to talk to you about one of our employees. He said, you know, you know I'm, I had a big discovery today. And Mitch says, really? And he says, yeah. He said, you know, Mitch, like everybody is, I thought everybody is pretty much the same. And Mitch says, really? He goes, yeah, yeah. He's like, you know, like in your family, you know, like your brothers and sisters, they're pretty much all the same. And Mitch says, not in my family. I mean, we're, we got a big family and we're very different from one another. He goes, okay, whatever. He goes, but then you go to school, like in high school, and pretty much everybody you go to high school with is like they're, they're pretty much the same. And Mitch says, not in my high school. Uh, they're really different. I had this group of athletes, and there's people that are kind of musical people, and then there's different groups and so forth, and people have different interests and different personalities, very different. He says, yeah, okay, whatever, Mike. He goes, but then I went off to college, and, and I, I like was in a fraternity. He said, okay. He said, and you know, in the fraternity, pretty much everybody's the same. And Mitch says, not in my fraternity. People were very different. and like polar opposites. He goes, whatever, whatever. Anyway, then you, you graduate, and you get a job, and I came to the company here, and, and it's like, you know, I'm figuring pretty much everybody's going to be the same, just like the rest of my life. And Mitch sits back and thinks, is thinking to himself, are you for real? He says, Mitch, people are different. And this was a huge discovery from my friend Mitch, uh, his, his coworker. And it's like, people are different. He'd never thought of that before. And to most of us, I think, it's pretty obvious, people are different. And today I wanna talk to you about people being different and specifically about you being different. Not being like everybody else, not being like the crowd, not being like everybody else around you, but truly being different. As Jesus has called us to shine like stars in the universe, to be salt and light in our world, we are called to be different. We are a part of a different sort of movement. We've been learning this in the book of Revelation. So here we are. Uh, Go back. We're in chapter 7, so you might want to make your way in your Bible, in your scripture journal. But go back to Revelation chapter 1. And the Apostle John, giving us the vision uh, given to him by Jesus, tells us something remarkable as he introduces himself. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 9. He says, I, John, your brother, and then he describes the movement they're a part of. Your partner in the affliction, kingdom, and endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. His teaching the word and, and standing for Jesus got him banished to the island of Patmos. He says, but I'm not really alone. We're partners in this, in this movement. And it's the movement, this partnership in the affliction, kingdom, and endurance that are in Jesus. Just a reminder from a few uh, months ago now, but we, we're partners, we're part of affliction. There's going to be difficulty, suffering, tribulation, affliction. Take heart, I've overcome the world. So we have affliction. We have a partnership in the kingdom, the reign of God, what God's doing on earth, we get to be a part of. And we're different because of that. Yes, we suffer, but we're part of the movement of God. And then we're in part of endurance. 
the endurance that are in Jesus. That is, we persevere. We keep pushing forward. We don't quit. We keep the faith. We keep following Jesus. And all of these work together. There's affliction sometimes, but then we experience the kingdom and then we endure. And as we endure, we understand that, yeah, I'm going to face some affliction. And on and on it goes. And we've been learning that throughout the book of Revelation, this partnership that we have in affliction, suffering, difficulty, but the reign of God and the kingdom of Jesus and then the endurance to keep going strong. That's what the book of Revelation is really all about. And the blessing there is in that if we trust in Jesus. All right. So last weekend, if you'll remember, we got to this moment where there, John is looking around for someone who is worthy to open the scroll, which is the plan of God, of, of human history and destiny and the meaning of life, and to break the seals, which will begin to enact the plan of God. And the Lamb of God is the only one, Jesus is the only one who is found worthy, and they worship him in heaven. And, and then last weekend, he, Jesus begins breaking open the seals of the scroll. Doesn't open the scroll yet. Break open the seals. And each one of the seven seals gets broken. Uh, we saw six of them last weekend. And then we get a pause today. Those seals are broken. And the first four, if you will recall, were the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And this has been depicted in many different ways by many different artists throughout history. And we remember the four horsemen of the apocalypse are troubles, difficulties, things that people are going to experience that even followers of Jesus are going to experience on planet earth. And they included things like a conquest, false teachers, wars, uh, rumors of war, rage, anger, uh, scarcity, economic inequity, uh, death, plague, difficulty, all these things. And they're just part of living in a fallen world. And they seem to intensify as we get nearer and nearer to the time of Jesus' return. And so those were kind of, those seals were broken open and it's to let the followers of Jesus know, you're not weird, this is just part of living in a culture that's hostile to God. And there's this conflict between the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. And so when, as we know that the four horsemen of the apocalypse, conquest, rage, scarcity, and death appear in our age and in every age since Jesus ascended and we await his second coming, it changes our perspective. We, we say, okay, I understand these things are going to happen. We adjust our expectations to live well following Jesus in the difficult days of life. So as Jesus breaks open the, these seals in, in a vision anyway, the four horsemen are released in the vision. And the martyrs are crying out, how long, O oh Lord, is this going to happen until you vindicate us and show that the way of Jesus is right and true? How long? And just as we get to this and this cataclysmic cosmic disruption comes and, and the people of earth are in a panic and they're crying out, when, when we face the justice of God, who can stand? And it's just everything's topsy-turvy. Um, the Apostle John and the vision then hits pause. And we open up to chapter 7. We have this interlude, this moment where before the seventh seal is broken and the scroll is open, we have a pause, dramatic pause. And he says, after this, not after what happened, but after this vision, he said, I saw another vision. I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, restraining the four winds of the earth so that no wind could blow on the earth or on the sea or on any tree. So as these 
four horsemen are about to be released from the four corners, northeast, southwest of the earth. There's a dramatic pause where the angel's standing at this uh, so that stops the action momentarily. Then verse two, I saw another angel rising up from the east who had the seal of the living God. Now, later on, we're going to see another seal or mark. Uh, it's called the mark of the beast. It's the one that people who aren't followers of Jesus take. And there's a lot to that. We'll get to that. And there's a, there's a lot to be explained. But, but what this is, is a co contrast or a counter sign to that sign. And this is the, the seal of the living God. And, and the seal uh, was, was something that was placed uh, by God. And he, this angel cried out in a loud voice to the four angels who were allowed to harm the earth and the sea. Don't harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we seal the servants of our gods, of our God on their foreheads. So this is an interesting vision picture. I don't know that this is going to be a literal reality or it is a literal reality, but it's a symbol of being, uh, belonging to God. Now in, uh, in, in the ancient days, it was not uncommon for some uh, servants or slaves to even have a mark on their forehead somewhere, which would say this is the family, the household that they belong to. Uh, also, some devotees of certain gods or goddesses would take a mark on their forehead to say, this, I belong to this god or this goddess. In Ezekiel, he has a, a vision in which he's told to, to mark people who otherwise are going to be judged by God with a, a, uh, with a mark on their forehead, Ezekiel chapter 9. And the mark is actually basically... It's the letter T. It's basically the sign of the cross. Um, and when the judgment of God comes, those people who have that mark of the living God on them are spared. It's like, no, they're forgiven. They're clean. They belong to God. They're not under the wrath of God. And so this is all in the background of this. And everybody who he reads this in the first century, they get this. They know this. This is common to them. So unlike us, we're not freaking out about this. And they know that it's symbolism. It may not be a literal you know, mark that, that people get or a seal that they get. The seal sealed the, the, uh, the scrolls. It also is a mark or a seal on these people. And this was all a sign of the protection of God, of the security that we have in, in a relationship with God and the fact that we belong to God. He, he owns us. He, he paid a price for us through Jesus Christ. And he says, so before all this comes down, before the people on earth experience this wrath in everyday life and intensifying as it comes to near the end, he says, I want the people of God to be marked out as belonging to God so that they don't need to be afraid. Here's the first way of being different. You can serve. He says, look, the servants of God get this, this, this uh, seal on their foreheads. Serve with confidence when others are filled with worry and fear. So there's difficult days of reading about this and people around us, even today, as they see the four horsemen living in our world, they're consumed with worry and fear. How much have we seen this over the last couple of years? People freaking out, losing it, panicking, anxiety, getting upset, angry. It happens in our world. It happens in the workplace, right? You see it. It happens sometimes in the schoolyard, in the community. It happens even in everyday life. 
And guys, you know me, eventually all stories of people overcoming difficulty and overcoming and enduring and persevering and ultimately coming out with a victory, that sort of story will always lead us to the 2016 Chicago Cubs. All right, so it's game seven. The Cubs haven't won a World Series in 108 years. The first baseman, Anthony Rizzo, he's a young player. He's a great player. He's an all-star, but he's super nervous in game seven. They have a lead. And he's in the dugout talking to the veteran 39-year-old catcher, David Ross, who is now the, the manager for the Chicago Cubs today. But back then he was on the team. And so he's talking to him about how nervous he is in this game seven situation. And let's just listen in because they had him mic'd up. Check it out. The catcher, here's what he had to say earlier. I can't control myself. I'm trying my it's, best. It's understandably so, but I'm emotional. I hear you. I'm an emotional wreck. Uh, well, you're, it's only going to get worse. Just continue to breathe. That's all you can do, buddy. That's all you can do. It's only going to get worse. I'm in a glass case of emotions right now. Yeah, yeah. Wait till the ninth with this three run lead. <laughs> Anthony Rizzo. Such great wisdom there. It's only going to get worse. Just take a deep breath. Take it in. We're going to get through this. Just wait till the ninth inning. Okay, I, I just think it was so great. Great wisdom there. And, of course, the Chicago Cubs. Did I mention they won the World Series 2016? Okay, yeah, they came through. So, yeah, that was great wisdom. Take a breath. Be different. Gain your confidence. Don't panic because God has sealed you. If you're a follower of Jesus, God has sealed you. In fact, um, what, what do we mean by sealing? It, it, it's, it's God has marked us out. In fact, um, Paul said in one place, let's check it out here. He says to the believers, he says, you were marked in him, in Christ, with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. We're going to make it and it's going to be glorious until the redemption of those who are God's possession. We belong to God, to the praise of his glory. I love that verse. And it's not, see these seals here? It's not a literal seal. It's a mark. The Holy Spirit is that God's, you, I, you belong to me, child. I'm watching over you. I'm taking care of you. And I'll see you through to the end, no matter what you face in life. So people that are different don't panic and freak out. They understand I've been sealed with the Holy Spirit, the living God knows me and loves me and counts me his own. So today, you're going to have tribulation and difficulty and trouble. But God has sealed you in Christ. You belong to him. He's going to protect you. You may suffer. Yes, you may go through difficulty and affliction and tribulation. But you will never, ever be an object of the wrath of God. He will never pour out his wrath on his own children. He has sealed you with his Holy Spirit. Now the vision goes on. And then he says, John says, and then I heard, didn't see anything, heard the number of the sealed. And we're going to get two visions now of the number of the sealed. The first one is this, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the Israelites. And then he says, 12,000 sealed from Judah, Reuben, Gad, keep going, Asher, Naphtali, Manasseh, Simeon, Levi, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, and 12,000 sealed from the tribe of Benjamin. So 12 tribes are listed here, all of them sealed by God. And the, now let's just talk about that 
I mean, again, we, we're like, what? This is crazy. I don't get this. Okay, understood. 12 times 12 times 1,000 is 144,000. That's what the number is. What's 12 times 12? Well, you got 12 uh, tribes of Israel. You got 12 apostles. By the way, both the tribes and the apostles are all Jewish. So you got 12 times 12, that's 144, times 1,000, which is this like big, big time number, completion, full, amazing. You put that all together and you got 144,000 amazing. Completion, wholeness, lots of them. So the list itself that we got was of the 12 tribes of Israel, sort of. The list really does, it is the 12 tribes, sort of, but it doesn't follow any of the lists of the Old Testament. For one thing, list almost always starts, when you list the 12 tribes, it always starts with Reuben, because he's the oldest. Not in this list, it starts with Judah. Why? Because Jesus is from the tribe of Judah. Judah. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah, so he gets first place of uh, of a, a, a primacy and importance. And then there's other things that are changed out. John's doing something to this list. Not this list, this particular list doesn't occur anywhere. Some names are missing, other names are added in. But he's doing something to, to tell us this is, this is a symbol. This is a symbol of the amazing part of the people of God. Now, before we go on, just one minute, okay? Who are these 144,000? This is a topic that theologians, Bible scholars have debated for about 2,000 years, and we're not going to solve it in the next 60 seconds. But nobody knows for sure. Some people say it's a symbol of the martyrs that we met in Revelation chapter 6, the souls under the altar, okay? Some people say the whole ch this is a symbol of the whole church, both Jewish and Gentile, coming together in completion, either of that time in the first century or of all time, who have inherited the promises of God made to Israel. That we're kingdom and priests, okay? And other people say, no, 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 it's the Jewish people of that time who, unlike most of the Jews of their time, believed in Jesus the Messiah, and they're part of this remnant of God. And then there's other, a very unusual and fairly novel view that came about maybe 160 years ago that said this imagery was a very literal 144,000 end times group of Jewish evangelists who will win many to Christ in the final days on earth. That, that view has been popularized in our culture through lots of books and so forth. Okay, I, I'm not sure which one of those is correct. Um, I do know that some of them are new, some of them are old. Perhaps any one of those views could be right. But I think most likely it's a symbol that, that Jesus, a Jewish man, gives a vision to the apostle John, also a Jewish man, to encourage the Jewish believers in the early church that they are the faithful remnant of Israel. Even though most Jewish people had rejected Jesus, he's honoring them and saying, hang in there, be faithful, be different. We know you feel different and it's okay to be different. Jesus was rejected, John was banished, but you, he says, are accepted by God. And this is in the final tally, in the end of days, however the 144,000 all works out, we'll leave that to digging deeper. We'll talk about it there maybe. But in the end of days, however it all works out, there will be a perfect, complete, and very large number of believers in Christ from a Jewish background. So I think probably it's a little bit of the first century, talking about their setting, and plenty of future that is envisioned. 
More on that when we get to Revelation 14, when we will again meet up with 144,000. But they are sealed. And the protection isn't just for Jewish people, it's for all peoples. All peoples are included because the numbering goes on. Continuing this idea of the number of those who are sealed, protected, secure in God is verse 9. After this, I didn't hear, but I looked and there was a vast multitude. That's another number, a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language, which no one could number. How many are sealed? Nobody can number. It's so many. There are so many followers of Jesus, of this international multi-ethnic group, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. So there's this worship scene that breaks out. And I got to tell you about this, guys. Abraham. Okay, we go way back. We got Abraham. Here he is, Abraham. He's, he's, he's not a Jewish man, all right? He becomes the father of the Jewish nation, eventually. But God appears to him and says, Abraham, I'm, I'm, I'm calling you out. And I'm going to take you and make you into a great nation. And you're not only going to be a great nation through you and through your offspring, hint, Jesus. I'm going to bless all the nations of the earth. So Abram, who becomes Abraham, is not just the father of the Jewish nation. He is the father of many nations because there's going to be all these people from all these different places. What did it say? Every people from every what? Nation, tribe, people, and language are going to belong to the movement of Jesus. This vast multitude are going to come together. It's going to be amazing. So this is a, a picture of a beautiful, countless group of international, multi-ethnic, racially diverse, and linguistically varied followers of the Lamb of God. See, this is what I love about Christianity. Its diversity is another thing that really sets it apart from everybody else. You're different. Followers of Jesus are different because our, the racial and ethnic and socioeconomic and language diversity in the Christian movement, the Christian faith, is totally unique. It is a picture of what heaven will be like and of what we want and long earth, the earthly church, to look like. Of people dwelling together in harmony, celebrating their differences ethnically, racially, language-wise, but enjoying the same faith, having the same hope, and worshiping the same Savior. Today, Christianity still is the only world religion to break out of the culture of its origin, a little nation in the Middle East called Israel. And from that one place, many nations, it doesn't have that kind of cultural uh, boundaries that keep it there within a certain culture. It is multiplied to all these different cultures on all the continents. All other world faiths are strongly tied to their culture of origin, not the movement of Jesus Christ. Every nation, people, tribe, and language. So we're different. So be different. And here's how you do that. If you're going to be different, you got to stand with God in worship. Stand with God and his diverse family when others are divided and going into camps by lesser things. Being different in this world means doing what Jesus did 
and that is loving across boundaries and lines, embracing people of different ethnic backgrounds, worshiping alongside people who speak a different language, who come from a different culture. That's a picture of heaven. And one of the things I can tell you guys, what I've loved about living in Des Moines, Iowa over the last 30 years is I've seen this transformation of Des Moines becoming this even more diverse place and of our church as time goes on, becoming more diverse. And I long for that to increase and grow. Last Christmas, we had an international dinner. I think there were 45 nations represented. And the truth is we can worship together. A while back, we counted it up here at Valley and I believe there were over 25 different nationalities represented at Valley Church in worship gatherings. You will hear Sometimes now in our community, certainly, I mean, guys, there's over 90 languages spoken in the West Des Moines School District. Can you imagine? But even here at church now, we're beginning to hear sometimes different languages, people with different clothing and food preferences and customs and opinions about stuff and culture and so forth. But here's the important thing. The world divides up people into small little special interest groups and they get really angry at each other and they go into their echo chambers and there's tribes and there's your people and we're not a part of this. The latest ism, the latest craze, the latest fad and they divide over everything. They disagree and then they retreat into their corners and into their echo chambers and they attack other people. And there's racism and hatred and stereotypes and injustices. And here's what I say, the church can't do that. The church must not do that. We come together in Jesus. We are united around our faith and around the scriptures, but we worship alongside people of all kinds of backgrounds. And we don't just tolerate that. We love that. We celebrate that. We're trying to launch some stuff with our uh, Spanish speaking folks to, to get some Spanish interpretation going so they can hear the message and, and, and have that translated uh, in real time. So keep praying for that, it's coming, all right? But, but it multiplies and keeps going forward. We love that. The center point of, of discussion is not about us. It's all about Jesus. It's not about politics or economics or nationalities or your favorite uh, news source or about celebrities or whatever. They're not important, really. We stand before the throne and the Lamb of God and we come together. And that's what heaven is like. And the more that we can see that on earth, the better your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And then we go on. And they were clothed in white robes, which signifies purity before God. They've been cleansed through Jesus. And they, uh, it also signifies victory. And they have palm branches, which in the ancient world is totally a sign of victory. You, you, the winners in the games, like the Olympic games, they're all given palm branches. Only the winners get those. And they get to wave them as victors. And they have them in their hands. They are the ones, they are the winners. And they cried out in a loud voice, here's why we're winners. Because salvation belongs to our God. We didn't do this, he did. Who is seated on the throne and to the lamb who was slain. We're not winners because of us, we're winners because of God. And all the angels stood around the throne. Now the whole heaven is celebrating along with the elders and the four living creatures, these angelic beings. They fell face down before the throne and they worship God saying, amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. How many things 
kind of praises do they give to God? I just listed seven of them because seven is perfection. He deserves our perfect, perfect praise. Robes and palm branches. The winners at the games get these. This is not for the losers. These are for the ultimate winners. We are the champions, my friends, and we'll keep on fighting to the end. Blessing and glory, wisdom, thanksgiving, honor and power and strength and all, all so forth. You get the picture? Yeah, Eugene Peterson, I love what he says about the, the believers in Jesus. He says, these people are not only secure because they're sealed, they are exuberant. This is a curious but wholly biblical phenomenon. The most frightening representations of evil, we got those last week of the Four Horsemen, Revelation 6, he said, are set alongside extravagant praise. People celebrating in the midst of evil. Christians sing. They sing in the desert. They sing in the night. They sing in prison. They sing in the storm. Any evil, no matter how fearsome, is exposed as weak and pedantic before such songs. No one can triumph over people like that. That's why we're called to be different. This multi-ethnic multitude of Jesus followers are the champions. So be different. And here's the third principle. Celebrate and worship God when others are captivated by idols. There's all these other gods, goddesses, things, worldviews, isms that come creeping and come asking us to follow them. And, and we say, no. No, we're going to be different. We're going to follow God. We're going to follow the Lamb. And this is our mindset. It's not just when we're in worship gatherings. It's our mindset of our lives. We live a life of worship and focus on Jesus. We don't get captivated by the latest uh, temptation. We don't get distracted by another cause that's a lesser cause. We, we don't allow our faith to be overtaken by other causes or compromised with other beliefs. Rather, we focus. Focus, people, is what he's saying here. Focus on God and the Lamb. They had their idols in their day. We have our idols in ours, guys. We, we have, we, let's face it, we, in, in the eyes of many in our culture, we have weird and unpopular values. We have exclusive beliefs about who God is and about who Jesus is. We belong to a spiritual kingdom that you can't even see. It's invisible. And yet we believe it's true. Back in the first century, in Asia Minor, Turkey, those seven churches felt surrounded. They're tiny little group. They feel completely surrounded by all these earthly kingdoms, by powerful emperors, by threatening leaders, by politicians and celebrities, all these gods and goddesses that the masses, that the vast majority of people believed were actually real and true, and they worshiped them, those Gods and goddesses, that empire, all those kingdoms seem so big, so intimidating, so dominating and overpowering, super popular and trendy too. And the Christians were, were sometimes felt like, we're just out of step. We're just, they're just too big. And, and Jesus gives this incredible, powerful vision to John and to us to this small group of people who believe in the Jewish carpenter, who claimed to be the son of God, who did amazing things, who taught us to love one another and to love God with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then who went to a cross and died for our sins, who 
executed on a cross, death could not hold him. He overcame death and the grave by rising from the dead on the third day. And we believe in him. We believe he is who he claims to be, Jesus the Christ, the Savior of the world. But you know what? We believe that, but a whole lot of people reject all that. And they rejected Jesus too. And we feel in our own day surrounded by values and idols that are contrary, that are tempting sometimes. Surrounded by people who think you're crazy. And then John gets this vision. He says, turn this around. It is not you who are surrounded. You are surrounding the Lamb and, the God, and God in worship. You are surrounding around the king and the kingdom that will forever last. Their kingdoms and their idols are all temporary. Temporary. Yours will last. And they needed a vision of an invisible reality because if they're just looking out, it, it's not looking good for them. And guess what? Vision all came true. All those kingdoms 2,000 years ago that those seven churches were facing, gone. All their emperors, gone. All the empires that they stood for and led, gone. All their gods and goddesses, gone. All their celebrities, gone. Idols, gone. The idols of their day have all vanished. They've all disappeared. And guess who outlasted them all? Jesus and the church. The church keeps going strong. The church triumphant. He remains. He is worthy. So we hang on to Jesus. We hang on to our faith. We celebrate and worship Jesus Christ. And by the way, he reminds us by this vision, you're not a small group. There are countless. The number couldn't even be counted of how many followers of Jesus there are. You seem like you're in a minority, but you just don't see the whole visible reality. The number of his followers are countless. Revelation pulls back the curtain to remind you of an ultimate reality. Of a, a number that no one can number. Of followers of the Lamb. Verse 13, one of the elders asked me, who are these people in white robes and where did they come from? So one of the angels asked him that. And he said, sir, you know. So John's like, I'm not going to play a guessing game. I'm not absolutely sure. So why don't you tell me? Okay. He told me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation, the suffering, the distress, the hardship. They, are, they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Now, real quick here. He said, these are people who have suffered greatly in tribulation. The word tribulation occurs constantly in the Old Testament and New Testament. Suffering, hardship, difficulty. This is just part of following God. There's going to be hardships, pressures. The word tribulation means to be, feel pressured, to squeeze, friction, trouble. And then in this particular verse, it says they're coming out of, which means they were in it, and somehow they survived through it, and they made it, he says, out of the great tribulation. Now, I, I, we don't have time to this. So you'll have to come digging deeper for all this. But what about this great tribulation? Oh, you ever? Wow. Yeah. Wow. Okay. We hear a lot about the great tribulation. And there's all sorts of theories and viewpoints and disagreements and whole churches have divided over this stuff. Here, I, I need to give us just a little reality check here. Okay. About the great tribulation. Because there's some people who are sure it's already happened. There's some people who know there's going to be seven years that right before Jesus comes back or the church is going to be raptured and then there's a tribulation or no, the church goes through the, whatever. There's all these different views. We'll, we'll unpack those in digging deeper. But I want to put this in perspective. 
Remember what we said? Keep the main things, the main things, the main things, the plain things, the plain things are the main things, major on the majors. Okay, how many chapters are there in the Bible? 1,189. How many verses are there in the Bible? 31,103, English Bible. How many words are there? 807, 361. Somebody added it all up. I'm sure different versions, plus or minus, however many. How many verses are there where the phrase great tribulation is used in the entire Bible? Four. One of them is Acts 7:11, which is about Joseph and the famine in Egypt and Canaan, and they were experiencing great tribulation. Has nothing to do with what we're talking about here. Second one is Matthew 24, 21, where Jesus in the Mount of Olives message does talk about a great, not the, but a great tribulation that happens. S scholars disagree whether that's still to come or it happened in the first century. Okay, that's the second one. Third one is Revelation 2.22, which we already saw. Jesus speaking to the church at Thyatira, a historical church in the first century. There were some immoral people that were being dragged into false teaching and they were compromising their faith. And he warned them. He said, unless you turn around and repent, I'm going to toss you into great tribulation. So that was something that they would experience to try to bring them to repentance. That, that's a historical reference. And then the only other one in the entire Bible is the one we have today. So all I'm saying is, yeah, we can unpack and have a lot of different opinions about all the timing and charts and so forth. But guys, it's not a main thing. It's mentioned a grand total of four times and maybe two of them refer to something to happen in the future. Now there are other verses and passages about it, I know. But all I'm saying is, relax, chill, let, you know, and remember the big picture, the big thing is that God's people are sealed and protected and he's going to see them through whatever they go through in this life. And I, I tend to think this, just like there are the last, last days, there are the last days we're living in now and then there are the last, last days, the final last days. I also think we have tribulation in this world, maybe even great mega tribulation sometimes, and maybe there is a great, great tribulation still to come in the future. Okay. How did they, how did they make it? How did they make it through all the difficulties? It says here, they did it by washing their robes and making them white in the blood of the lamb. Verse 14. I mean, literally, they took their dirty laundry to Jesus. Right? I mean, their, their own, our robes, we got stains, we got stuff, we got troubles, we got sins, we got all sorts of problems. And you take it to Jesus at the foot of the cross and in this very picturesque symbolic language of washing their robes in the blood of the lamb. That imagery sticks with you. That's why it's given to you. And there's this power, this forgiveness power symbolized by the way in baptism of the, the, the cross of Jesus to, to cleanse us and make us to be able to stand before him in victory and purity. Not because we're great or we're superior or we're better than. No, we're not. But because Jesus died for us on the cross. Nobody listening to this is going to get to heaven. Nobody is going to survive all the difficulties and challenges of life and come out on the other side in the presence of God because of your own righteousness. Because you cleaned your own clothes up. No, you bring, we bring our dirty laundry to Jesus and we wash it. And through his blood, we're forgiven and cleansed 
of all of our sins through the atoning work of Jesus. That's the imagery and it's so powerful. Verse 15, for this reason they are before the throne of God and they serve him day and night in his temple. For this reason, because they believed in Jesus, not because they were better, superior, smarter, because they trusted in Jesus. And now they serve God. And here's the fourth principle. If you're gonna be different, persevere and triumph when others bail and fail. They persevered through tribulation and hardship and difficulty, and they triumphed through perseverance. And when everybody else is bailing and failing, it's like, we're not going to follow Jesus too hard. I'm not going to, you know, no, they stick with it. Let's face it, guys. You and I are going to be unpopular sometimes. We're not going to fit in with everybody. We're going to feel like outsiders because we are. And we're not going to always feel like we're on trend with every last thing culture's saying. It's okay. So did they. And they overcame by trusting in Jesus. And we will too. We will be triumphant. Not by bailing on our values. Not by failing Jesus. But by persevering and triumphing in the end. Here's one thing. There's a lot of stuff happening around us that maybe, you know, it's contrary to the ways of Jesus. That the church has believed for 2,000 years. The answer is not to jump on those bandwagons. The answer is to take some heat not jump on the bandwagons and say, I'll keep my faith pure. I'm not aligning myself with a politician. I'm not aligning myself with this latest cultural trend. I'm going to just follow Jesus. All right. Here's the thing about bandwagons. Sometimes we, us, we have this bad habit of jumping on bandwagons just as they are about to plunge over the cliff. That is, they've kind of run their course in culture and then Christians find out about it, this happening, and they go, like, I want to jump on that bandwagon. And then eventually, a little while later, it falls over the cliff and then Christians have bailed on the faith and it's like, what? You shouldn't have done that. So don't bail and fail. Persevere and triumph in Jesus. You will face trials at lots of times, but you hang in there. You persevere through your difficulties. When everybody else bails on Jesus and bails on their family and bails on their friendships and bails on their marriage and bails on their uh, walking with Christ, they give up and they quit and they fail. You persevere and triumph. You're going to face difficulties. Sometimes just ordinary stuff of life. I want to show you a picture of persevering and triumphing over the odds. And it is a video that I received from my wife just a few hours ago um, in rehab hospital. Check it out. Guys, you talk about persevering, you talk about enduring, you talk about toughness, you talk about not bailing and failing. Ah, wow. I mean, come on now. Oh, and it's going to be worth it in the end.
It's going to be worth it in the end, guys. It's, it's worth it. It's going to be worth it for Ruth in this trial of life. It's going to be worth it for all of us. What, and you may be facing something else. I don't know what it is. But what do you do? You put one foot in front of the other. That's what you do. You keep walking forward. You keep trusting Jesus. You keep praying. You don't give up. It's going to be worth it in the end because I read this book and it says the one seated on the throne, he's going to shelter us. He's going to shelter us. He's going to protect us. They will no longer, here's the destiny we have. They'll no longer hunger. They'll no longer thirst. The sun will no longer strike them. And as a redhead, I really appreciate that. Nor any scorching, we won't have any scorching heat. We're out of the hot, humid Iowa winters. It's going to, uh, summers, it's going to be amazing. For the lamb who is at the center of the throne will shepherd them. He will guide them to springs of the waters of life. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Be different. Last principle. Enjoy God's best when others settle for less. God has so much incredible things planned for you in this life and in the life to come beyond our wildest imaginations. Keep being different. When everyone else settles for things that pass and don't matter in eternity, you Enjoy God's best and follow him faithfully. Because we're longing for that. Everybody's looking for that. But C.S. Lewis put it this way. I love what he says. If I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. Brother, sister, you were made for more. You were made for God. You were made to know God. You were made to enjoy God forever. You were made to celebrate and magnify God. You were made for more. Why settle for less? Be different. Father, thank you for this time and your word together. I pray that you would encourage, challenge, stretch, whatever you want to do in every heart that hears this. And I pray that you take this word and supernaturally drive it into our hearts for our comfort, for our encouragement, and mostly for your glory and honor and praise, because you deserve it. In Jesus' name. And everybody agreed and said, amen. God bless you all, and we will see you soon.